Hey everyone, welcome to episode 75 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast to ever do a mailbag episode. Hey! Also, we have a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Apple. With me as always is Colin Smalling. Hey Collins! How's it going, Chris? Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Uh, yes, all of those delightful things. Yeah, I've had a pretty good holiday. Have you? Have you? How's your gone? Nothing too exciting. My entire family lives in Raleigh, basically. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Same. Very so. easy. <laughs> well, Ra- yeah, the Triangle and Wilmington for me, so it's all pretty close. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, I you know I'm I'm ready to get back into the, into the fold of things. Yeah, start recording another episode, talk about some magic, we, maybe answer some questions. We took our standard uh, Christmas day off of recording the podcast, <laughs> and now we're <laughs> yeah. back. Um, only like kind of back though, cause I don't know if a mailbag episode totally counts. Well, sure. <laughs> it's a little easier to, to, to prep for and stuff, but I like questions. Yeah. Uh, so that's pretty much all we're going to do today is we got a whole bunch of questions. We're going to go answer them. Should be really fun. Cause it's kind of the most fun part of the episode anyways, <laughs> most of the time. Yeah. I guess we'll start with a keeper mole and then we'll just get straight into the questions. Yeah. Let's do it. So this keeper mole is I'm playing modern Phoenix. My particular list has uh, two Crackling Drakes and three Jace of Rins Prodigies and no Monastery Swift Spears. So it's a little bit less aggressive, uh, but you know that, that that's the build right now. The opening hand on the play, our starting seven is two Scowling Tarns, a Mountain, a Serum Visions, an Opt, an it Charm, and a Crackling Drake. Yeah. And so the reason that I like picked this hand for a Keeper Mole is because I think that these cantrip decks have like a slightly different mulliganing philosophy from a okay. lot of other decks. Yeah. I think this hand is still very close, but you know, we look at modern sevens and we think, okay, if I need something, then I don't want to keep this hand. Yeah. But if your hand is a bunch of faithless lootings and metamorphoses and stuff, then or in this case, serum visions and opt, then it's a <laughs> lot harder to know, you know, like what your hand actually is. Yeah. Um so I know that this is you know, a type of deck you might have played more in Legacy than in Modern, just like all cantrips and and a little bit of a very few cards that aren't just nonsense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't know, like, like, what do you think about this? This kind my of hand? my first instincts on this hand is that I would keep it <laughs> because it's got three lands, you know, three cantrip ish cards and a crackling drake. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, on the surface, it looks like fine lands and spells hand. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that said, I, I don't personally have a lot of experience with this, is it Drake's deck? Yeah. So, um, my mulliganing, you know, reasoning might be a little off in this context. I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is really close and I did end up keeping it mostly as a, like, I'm getting reps in and I'm just trying to see what works out and what doesn't. Yeah. What this hand really needs is for the Serum Visions to give you a thing in the ice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Or maybe a Jace, which is right. why the Jaces are in the deck because they perform a sort of similar role on turn two of just like being a powerful thing that you can't trip into and play on turn two and then go from there. Mm-hmm. The problem that I have with this hand is that a lot of hands you don't know what they're going to end up with, but they have potential because they either already have a Faithless Looting or a Manamorphose in them. Mm-hmm. That makes it very easy to get Phoenixes back early. Yeah. Um, this hand does have the Is It Charm to discard the Phoenixes, but you know, you aren't totally sure like you're gonna have to cast that is it charm on turn two after casting one cantrip and then hopefully get your phoenixes down in, you know however many phoenixes you have there you're discarding them turn two 
and then turn three, you're casting a bunch of cantrips to get back the phoenixes. Mm-hmm. If if you don't draw the thing in the ice or jace, if you're yeah. if phoenixes are the threats you draw into, okay, and that's the sequencing that is much less powerful than casting all of your cantrips and then the last thing you cast is the faithless looting because you're much more likely to have like two phoenixes at that point. Yeah. So that's that's why this hand doesn't feel great to me is because it doesn't none of the cards in it are really giving it a high ceiling. They're just get all sort of like enabler cards, just kind of these generic cantrips and then crackling drake just feels like a million turns away. Yeah. But that said, you know, good lands, cantrips, the cantrips can get you to that high ceiling. Like if if I see if, if this hand gives you, like, a Manamorphose and a Phoenix, then, you know, yeah, th- then it's great. But it just doesn't have any of the stuff. You know, the powerful cards in the deck are Faithless Looting, Thing in the Ice, Arclight Phoenix, and Metamorphose, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't really have any of those. That's, <laughs> right. that's a little frightening. But that said, I mostly just keep hands with this deck that are good balances of lands and spells. Sure. Because all the spells are almost the same. Yeah, I mean, and the more you've been talking talking about it, and especially your initial reference to how Legacy is also similarly, um, mostly cantrips, uh, I think that Legacy can support that, because while Legacy can be fast in some contexts, mm-hmm. you can back those cantrips up with free spells, yeah. like Dazes and Force of Wills. So you can spend your early turns, like, you know, casting these cantrips and sculpting your hand and figuring out your game plan, but you still have the opportunity to have these free spells to inter- continue interacting with your opponent while you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, modern feels like a pretty different environment, and it feels much more punishing to decks yeah. that are trying to just spend the first three turns only cantripping. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems likely that in you know in a modern context, if you spend your first three turns just like cantripping a bunch, and your opponent's doing something powerful and proactive so you're playing against humans for example right you're probably just dead with this hand against humans yeah if they play um, thalia into play on turn two or something right. yeah, yeah 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 especially that and then you know risking bricking on your like thing in the ice on turn two or whatever after your serum visions it can be pretty rough so i guess it really how many jace vrins prodigies have you been running? i'm on three you're right on now because okay. i'm trying to maximize my number like the idea is basically like let me keep these Serum Visions hands that don't necessarily have a thing in it because I'm I'm pretty likely to hit either a Jace or a Thing in the Ice yeah, after right. seeing four more cards. Given that you have seven really, really powerful two-drops like that, I think that I like keeping a hand like this. Mm-hmm. But if you don't and you're you're more on like the Swift Spear version of this deck or something right. like that, then I think that I would even be more incentivized to mulligan this hand because um, while it does have the can- the cantrips that will sculpt this into something that will be powerful, more powerful in the late game, I think that it is running into risks um, in some contexts. But, you know, Serum Visions might just simply be powerful enough on its own to, mm-hmm. s- to create a powerful draw out of this, just like all of those, like, deck selections. Because in the first two turns, just with, you know, using our turn one Serum Visions and then our next turn Opt, we're looking through six cards. Yeah. Which is a lot, yeah. right? Pretty... Strongly hoping not to be casting that opt on turn two, though. That's Fair. like that's kind yeah. of the, the bad scenario. <laughs> okay, sure. Like sure. if we're doing that, it's probably because oh crap, they played something and now we're looking for a bolt because we missed on our thing in the ice or something like that. And yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's a rough spot. Yeah, and and that's an interesting 
point that you brought up about like not having dazes and force of wills mm-hmm. um, and i've really experienced this in standard actually like yeah, i'm yeah. just playing the same deck in standard and modern <laughs> yeah like, right right I, I mean i'm on i'm on like no phoenix drakes in standard right okay. now I, I think it's just a better deck yeah but it's a really similar idea like there's a lot of air in the deck and i've learned that like pretty much no matter what the cantrips in your hand are it's a pretty bad idea to keep one land hands even if you have like multiple ops because what happens then is you're locked into casting only cantrips for the first several turns of the game. And your hand's going to clunk out. Yeah, and if yeah. you if if you need to cast a Lava Coil on something, right. you just can't do it. Right. Uh, <laughs> right, yeah. And then you get run over, as opposed to the hands where you have a couple of lands and you would rather cast cantrips, but if you have to cast this this burn spell, you can do it to keep yourself from dying. Yeah. Um, leaving yourself without that option because you're so light on lands or whatever is is not great yeah yeah i mean that's definitely an interesting observation that you've made of like the one land hands that have like a couple of one mana cards that mm-hmm. can get us to more lands seem a little more risky because let's say that our hand turns those cantrips into those lands now we're left with the remaining like you know two mana cards or whatever that have left in our hand it's just more likely that our hand is going to be full of a bunch of clunky cards that are hard to cast yeah um you know even if we do hit our land so that's yeah i mean that's definitely an interesting point for sure yeah so i mean like these cantrip decks in general both in standard and in modern are a little bit outside of my particular wheelhouse so i'm trying to learn like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. what is capable and what isn't and it's right. been a little bit of an adventure so far i can't has got to be just be one of the most challenging you know parts of magic yeah it's yeah it seems insanely difficult to be able to parse through everything I've had so many games where I've, like, discarded Niv-Mizzet to chart a course, and then three turns later been like, boy, I really <laughs> wish I hadn't discarded that Niv-Mizzet to chart a right, course. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I, I found that if you start thinking about your games in the context of, like, what I want this overall game to look like, mm-hmm. it helps your decisions in your cantrips a lot. Like, so say, you're like, okay, I'm playing this matchup, that means that I'm really going to need to have one of these things happen for me and then yeah. you can like start sculpting towards one of those plans that can really inform a lot of your decisions but if you're trying to make each individual cantrip decision optimally right it's, you're gonna you're, it's gonna be too hard i agree <laughs> so, um <laughs> definitely yeah. so my advice for people playing cantrip heavy decks is just like really sculpt a plan around what they want to do and then optimize those cantrips to help you know execute that plan mm-hmm. you know for phoenix it might be find phoenixes or something yep. like so you know that's a plan so at least you know what you're looking for as you're going through it but if you're like trying to weigh you know i don't know a faithless looting versus another cantrip in your scry decision or something it's just like you know those are always really tough yeah yeah definitely well and and you know once you play the deck enough you get to the point where before you cast the cantrip like you have a really good idea of you know what you know what you're gonna bottom with your opt and mm. what you're gonna top right, and, right. like you know, there, there's times where you cast the Serum Visions and you're like, I'm literally going to bottom anything that isn't an Arglight Phoenix right, here. Right, right, right. Yeah. The only thing that matters this turn. Yeah. Um, and you know that before casting the spell, and that's when you know, like, I should be casting the spell this turn because right. I know what I'm looking for. Yeah. So I guess going back to the Keeper Mall, uh, how likely is this hand able to execute one of those plans right. that we really like out of this deck? Just like our, I guess, our default proactive game plan. Um, and you already went over most of that, right? You said we need to either find a turn two thing in the ice or we need to find phoenixes. Yep. Um, and and I think when you're casting that Serum Visions, you're bottoming 
literally anything not that drop. is not a two drop or a phoenix yeah and, and phoenix is still kind of sketchy but it's just like barely good enough that sure, sure. that you want it there okay interesting definitely an interesting thought experiment yeah yeah so <laughs> yeah. The, these decks are just more complicated in in ways that i'm not really used to so i'm trying to figure them out right right for sure so shall we move on to... Mailbag. Yeah, we got a lot of questions. We're going to get through as many as we can. Um, if we don't get to yours, we'll save it for the next Mailbag episode or something, right. you know, next year or whatever. <laughs> for sure. Uh, so we'll start with TCG Player 92 who asks, What advice would you give to someone who struggles with the physical mechanics of the game, like taking longer than you should for tapping lands and having a clean board state, graveyard, etc.? This is something you specifically... Yeah, like, worked around. So I, I mean, I do think about this stuff a lot. I it falls in the category of uh, things external to playing a match of Magic the Gathering that I really, really heavily focus on when I play in tournaments. Mm-hmm. So I'm really focused on making sure I'm eating well and drinking enough water, i.e., the jug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, exercise has been a you know recent thing for me that I've been working on. And yeah, so I heard, just like, heard you guys were going on a hike soon. So. Um, we are. Yeah, it's going to be great. My philosophy is that if I can minimalize my distractions, it just helps me focus better. And a lot of that comes from the fact that I have focus problems. You know, I get very easily distracted in many contexts. Mm-hmm. So I just have to make sure that I'm uh, able to focus on the games. So another element for all of that for me is making sure that my mechanics are smooth and clean and I don't really have to think too much about what I'm doing. Yeah. So when I played Dredge, I sat down with you know just the deck and I goldfished out for a while and I kind of figured out what you know the best mechanics were for me for dredging and for maintaining my graveyard and uh, where I wanted my lands and my creatures and my graveyard and my deck and all those things in reference to each other. I just kind of mapped it all out, and I created what I think was a pretty efficient system that I now use for Dredge. Mm-hmm. And I even it works so well for me that I even use it for KCI, too, because it has a lot of similarities in, mm-hmm. um, in that. So I do, I do think about those things quite a bit, um, and I, but I think that most of those are tuned towards me. So if other people are looking for advice on how they can help their mechanics, I don't know exactly what really to tell them. I think that physical mechanics is something that I've noticed for most people. It's just something that you develop out of experience. Mm -hmm. You just really get familiar handling cards. And then, you know, once you get to that point, you can just kind of do it. Um, The players that I've seen playing forever just have everything locked and it's all just muscle memory for them yeah um but that said there are some players who really struggle with the physical mechanics and sometimes it's because they just you know maybe they don't play a lot of paper magic maybe they're mostly magic online players that's a pretty common trend i've seen where i play against somebody um who seems to be making their decisions very competently but their board state is a disaster (laughs) you know and i'm just like you know all their lands and everything's tapped to like maybe 30 degrees or something and and you know that's I think it's just kind of fine, and I think it's going to be up for most people. Like, if, if somebody wants to make a conscious decision to clean up things like that, then they will. But if somebody's not really bothered with things like that, then I think that they probably just kind of continue. Right. It's only a problem that. if it's actually like costing you 
percentage points or something or, yeah. or creating communications difficulties. Right, right. But I, I would say if you do want to fix it, if you're taking longer than you should for tapping lands and your, your board state is messy and it's like making you make bad decisions or something like that, then I think you fix it the same way that you fix pretty much anything else, which is by study and practice. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Studying, I mean, like walk next time you're at a tournament, walk around and like see if you know watch people who are playing see the people who have like clean board states with complicated decks and see if they do things you haven't thought of mm. maybe talk to people who who you who seem to do a good job watch streams and that sort of thing yeah and you know practice like if you're playing a deck that makes complicated board states you know, I've seen people like sitting there, like goldfishing with KCI or or goldfishing with Storm or something, and just sort of like throwing their cards on the table, like this thing, this thing, this thing, because they're not waiting for an opponent with priority, so they're just like getting through it. Right. But that's a thing you can practice too. Is you can practice, you know, rolling up your dice for mana and stuff like that, and, mm-hmm. and being as clean and clear as possible, yeah. and just practice the way you want to play. Yeah, and you you definitely brought up an interesting point where people do f- tend to practice. And as they're practicing, they're just being more sloppy Mm because they know that it doesn't really matter. And that's like a real trend that is just, I think, common to most everybody, is that when we consider ourselves to be performing, we're going to put in a lot more effort. Yep. Um, And kind of no matter what context that is, for for us, it's Magic the Gathering and playing tournaments, right? Tournaments is when we're performing. Mm -hmm. And we've got somebody sitting across from us, and we really got to do it, right? Yeah. And so we're going to be more focused on it. But but when we're practicing, you know, we feel like we have the liberty to just kind of throw cards on the table and and be like, all right, this is fine. It doesn't matter. Right. But But, that's not how, you know, if you're playing a sport, that's not how you practice your sport. It's, I, right. The point I guess I want to make is that it's really important to practice as if you are performing. Yeah. Um, and if you do that in whatever you are, you know, whatever area you're trying to get better at and whatever you're practicing on, I think that it's really going to show a significant difference in the impact that that practice has on your performance. Because if you're practicing as though you have an opponent and you need to explain your KCI loop to that opponent, then all of a sudden, if you just do that every time you practice, you're going to be able to very easily mm-hmm. explain your KCI loops. Yep. Makes sense to me. Practice like you're performing yep. would be my uh, my piece of advice there, I guess. <laughs> I agree. I completely agree. Yeah. Uh, next, Friendly Fire 21 asks, what bad habits during matches bother you the most, and how do you overcome someone sitting across from you doing them? I'm going to be honest, I don't really notice most of the outside-of-game stuff my opponent is doing. Like, I pay attention enough, so, like, in the game of Limited, if I see my opponent's eyes flicking towards their graveyard a lot, then, like then I'll know that they have like a raised dead or something like that in their hand. If my opponents are flicking cards or whatever, or like tapping their lands weird or something like that. It like just doesn't affect me at all. My opponents pile shuffle. I roll my eyes a little bit. Uh, I was, was going to say pile shuffling. <laughs> I was going to snap off pile shuffling okay. as soon as you said anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whenever my opponent pile shuffles, I internally wince. Because it's just taking two minutes away from the time but you have I, to play. I guess I should clarify. If you want to count your deck, then go ahead and pile shuffle. Mm-hmm. But if, you, if you're one of the people who just like insists on doing it for every randomization, yeah. <laughs> then it gets a little excessive for sure. Other than that, I don't really know. It's, um, hard. it's hard to bother me mostly playing Magic. Yeah. I don't know. 
if you like are being a jerk, then that's yeah, a definitely thing, some but... social bad habits that, that that bug me every once in a while. Yeah, um, but you're just bound to run into plenty of those yeah. <laughs> in in life. So, but I've just like I've played against so many people who sit there flicking their cards the whole the whole match that it just isn't something that my brain like it. My brain filters it out mostly. I think at this point. So yeah, 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 for sure. The flicks. Yeah. Whenever a new, like somebody unfamiliar with the magic scene walks into like, you know, like a Grand Prix hall or something, (laughs) or like even just like an FNM, they're always, every single time, they're always like, what's that noise? (laughs) And I'm like, what noise? And then I like listen and it's just, (laughs) just kind of like the card flicking. (laughs) Yeah. See, I don't even really do that. I never built that habit. I kind of just like once or twice a turn, I shuffle my hand. Like Mm -hmm. every time my hand changes, I just shuffle it once. Sure, sure. And that's about all I'll do for it. that's that's all that's necessary but yeah sometimes you just like you know giving it a good old shuffle <laughs> <laughs> um all right ellison asks how many focus matches do you need to play to feel comfortable with an average standard deck before a tournament modern how many focus matches to feel comfortable um i don't really quantify it in terms of matches played yeah but i do quantify it so i if i'm my objective for feeling comfortable with a tournament is to have a plan in all of my matchups mm-hmm. that I expect to face. Yep. So for standard, that is sometimes is actually pretty simple because uh, so I played in the mocks a couple of weekends ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was standard. I played black green, and my objective for going into that tournament was that I had a plan for the mirror for Jeskai control for white weenie and for Drakes. Drakes. Yep. Because um, those were the the four particularly dominant that would be 80 percent of your matches. right yeah. yeah so so i i figured out how i believed i wanted to play all of those matches mm-hmm. what my post-board strategy was what i believed was important in each match um the common play patterns uh where i ended up winning the matches the common play patterns that i ended up losing those matches those are all very useful tools that can really guide you in you know figuring out your decisions yep um, kind of like a macro idea of, of of what standard looks like in that context. Sure. So once I figured once I figured out a plan for each of those matches, then I feel prepared for the tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then I I might like go back and try to figure out you know more specific things if things aren't working. But if I feel comfortable in all of those plans, then I'll feel prepared for a tournament. And sometimes it depends on the you know. the number of matches that I need to play is completely dependent on a bunch of different factors. So, you know, how much information have my teammates just been able to give me based on their experience that Mm -hmm. I can utilize? How much do I need to just get in and grind and have that experience for myself? So, yeah, I, I... uh, yeah, that's that's the way that I quantify feeling comfortable for a tournament. Yeah, I, I think that's really important is, is like once you have your plans, then you're in a good spot. Mm-hmm. For me, it's really hard in modern. Um, I need a lot of games uh, yeah. to get. Well, because there's just you, you can play against anything. <laughs> right, right. So, so yeah. yeah, number one, that you can play right. against anything. And also just like the decks are more complicated. Mm-hmm. Like your your spells are so much cheaper and do so many things. You know, like playing this Phoenix deck, there's all of these, all, I keep making these plays that like, uh, you know, five seconds after I make them, I think, I think that was wrong. You know, like I'll, I'll ditch my second gut shot to a Faithless Looting, but then I'll realize like I should have kept that up 
because my opponent could kill my thing in the ice in response to my fourth spell, and <laughs> yeah. I want this gut shot just in case, because the only yeah, thing that yeah, matters yeah. is flipping this thing in the ice. Right. Like, there's just all these, like, super complex interactions that now I am starting to pick them up, but I have 40-something matches in the last couple of days with this deck, like, and it, that's what it, it, it takes me a long time to get a yeah. modern deck down. Yeah, for sure, for sure. For modern, modern for me, I think um, I lean extraordinarily heavily on my just general format knowledge yeah. in modern. I think that I I know modern very very well, so I I feel very advantaged in that sense. Where when I'm preparing for a modern tournament, mm-hmm. I can go ahead and skip the step of figuring out what my opponents are up to. Yeah, because I know what my opponents are up to. Right, right. Um, if you know, I, I'll know what deck they're on in the first couple of turns, and then I'll know exactly you know what they're what they're doing, most of their plans. I just have all that information readily available. Mm-hmm. Um, so my advice for somebody who's trying to feel prepared to go to a modern tournament is just work on that knowledge base that you have. Yeah, really work on understanding all of the decks, and then the I think the next step after that is to really start understanding your deck. Mm-hmm. Uh, something I do a lot, thanks to mana traders on Magic Online, is just I queue up various modern decks right. not, all the time. Not because you're planning right. on playing them in yeah. a big with, tournament. With no intention of playing them in a big tournament, but I just really want to understand what's going on yeah. with with each of those decks and, and how they play out and, and all that stuff. Yep. From there, I can see their perspective and then understand how it works with the deck that I'm playing what's how we're going to interact with each other and and then on and stuff yeah but but i think that if you want to get to that point in modern then the first thing you need to do is really develop a rudimentary understanding of all the decks in the format i agree yeah Yeah, i am much better i I play much tighter against decks that i have played like put significant time in It's, Uh, it's 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 incredible yeah and honestly just one league with a deck can it can extraordinarily change your perspective on Mm -hmm. on a lot of things so um you know i've played one league with like a few various modern decks and 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 then afterwards i was like wow i feel like i just you know have so much more of an understanding of how this deck plays out it it's it's really weird to me like even if i know my opponent's like 75 basically Mm -hmm. uh but like sitting down across from like blue white control and playing against it like before I spent any time playing the deck, it always felt like their deck was like this black hole of like possible stuff that could happen to <laughs> right. me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and then after playing with it, like it just like they they like resolve themselves into individual cards and interactions in a way that like it's much easier to figure out what mm-hmm. you need to play around yeah. at any given time. Yeah, yeah, because I think Blue Eye is is definitely one of those decks that is more in that kind of like broader game plan context mm-hmm. the individual card interactions matter so little yeah in those matches it's all about like making sure that you're putting yourself in a good position and making things awkward for the blue white opponent mm-hmm. and as the blue white opponent if you like play a league with blue white you're going to realize how awkward things can get for you <laughs> <laughs> so uh so yeah big difference for sure yep all right captain scissors asks what is your go-to karaoke song oh man I don't know if I have an answer prepared for this. Yeah, uh, I probably should have shipped you these questions earlier. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I honestly have been trying to think of this. I really don't karaoke very much, so I don't have a great answer. You know, I would probably, I don't want to say, like, don't stop believing, because I think everybody just boos you when you do that, right? <laughs> right, yeah, probably. Um, I don't know, maybe, like, probably an ACDC song. It's just one of the more fun things to do thunderstruck yeah. or something yeah, yeah there's a lot of time of not karaokeing and that which is probably <laughs> the best for everyone so 
Fair, fair. <laughs> nice. Uh, next question might be a little easier. Uh, Uber JJ, what does your ideal concert look like? Ideal concert. So I, I must admit, I'm just not that big of a concert guy. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not super concert like driven either, um, which kind of means that my ideal concert is not necessarily like a specific lineup. But what I really like is going to a smaller show of some artists that I know really well and either go alone or go with somebody else who like is really really into this this particular artist and have, like I've connected with them over that and then that's the the best concerts for me have been like kind of intensely personal experiences. Nice. Um I went to a a a Julian Baker show at the like the the small back room at Cat's Cradle and that was like one of my favorite concerts that I've been to and it was just her uh there was no opening act and it was like that's one of my ideal concerts. So mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's not any particular bands or anything like that, but that kind of experience is what I really enjoy. Nice. That's really awesome. All right. What was the best part of your last weekend playing Magic? So, let's see. That was the Mox, I guess, for me? That doesn't count, right? That doesn't count. I think it's got to be like an actual tournament weekend. So, then that would be the IQ that okay. we played oh yeah that's yeah. true that did happen yeah i forgot about that because i left two rounds in <laughs> yeah well i won that tournament so yeah, it's pretty, so it pretty, pretty good, good. <laughs> yeah. so winning it is probably the best part no uh honestly probably the best part was being able to split the finals with uh manny he was very excited to win an invite to the invitational gotcha and the, both of the finalists got there right yeah and i i already had that but i wanted the scg points mm-hmm. but being able to split with them with him and see his excitement and and like like i just remember back when i was just like really gunning for my first invitational invite and i got there that was just a really big moment for me that uh, is very cool and i think that i got to see that in him and that was that was really awesome so. yeah makes sense yeah um I'm not going to count that as my last weekend playing Magic because okay. I barely play sure. Magic. So, yeah. so my last weekend playing Magic is really the Envy. Um, I don't know. Just It is very fun going on trips with your friends, getting a house, hanging out, playing Smash or whatever, and go, like, going to the tournament together. I don't mm-hmm. think there was a specific moment that stood out at the Invitational. But, I mean, watching Lee Q for the, the, the Cube was really fun. That was probably the best part. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that was very cool. Yeah, that that was uh yeah, Lee queuing for that was was pretty great. I was very excited about that. Yes. Yeah. Um what is your favorite breakfast food? This is also from Captain Scissors. I'm a sucker for eggs. Yeah. Uh lately I've been eating hard boiled eggs. <laughs> Just, you know, hard boiled eggs with some with some salt and pepper on them. They're great. Yeah. Honestly, my favorite breakfast food is probably bagels. Like like lox and bagels is probably what does it for me, uh, okay. but I can't really. You can't eat bagels all the time. Right? Yeah, <laughs> a little intensive. You'll you'll just die. You'll just get <laughs> yeah. fat and die. Um. Yeah. Lee asks, "What is the weirdest judge call you've had?" Weirdest judge call I've ever had. Yeah, I've had some weird judge calls. Probably the weirdest one would be when my opponent used a scry two as a draw two and put my hand on the bottom of my library. That was pretty weird. Just brainstormed it, or well, he had his hand in his left hand, and then his deck was on his right, so he picked up two cards with his right hand, oh. and he looked at the two cards in his right hand, and he looked at the two cards in his left hand, and he put the two cards in his left hand on the bottom <laughs> of his library and passed the turn. <laughs> so yeah, I 
I, I might have told that story a while ago on this podcast. I don't think so. I'm not sure that I've heard that story. Really? So. Okay. It was it was one. Of, it was pretty early on in my. It was like you know, pretty early on in me playing in tournaments, mm-hmm. and it happened in an open. Um, and I was just so baffled. I just didn't really know what to do. I'm sure that so they I, were baffled too once they realized what they had done. I actually think that it was malicious. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's very different because they claimed that it, they didn't do it, and it was just my word against theirs. Oh, well, that sounds very malicious because... So it became a strange judge call. <laughs> right. How are you not tracking the two cards in your hand and then... Yeah, that's very weird. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the... Yeah, I, I didn't really know as much about, you know, the whole judge call system back then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was definitely one that I still to this day was confused about because it was such, it, you know, it was such a clear thing that they just denied that they did and and then i was sitting there nobody else had seen it and it was me against them and i was just like this feels bad right and i called the judge and i explained what i saw and my opponent was like you must have missaw i just didn't do that and i it was the whole thing but weird yeah mine was definitely not malicious my my weirdest judge call is still probably my opponent on like a red white prison deck and i'm playing living end and on his like third turn, he exiles a Simeon Spirit Guide and taps three lands and plays Chalice of the Void and announces Chalice for three. Um, and had paid four mana for it. And I just sort of looked at him and I thought, I'm not going to try to figure out what's going on here. I'm just going to call a judge. Okay, yeah. I uh, pretty much like I don't really know how the judge call like went, but the like they ended up just like pulling him away and talking to him, and I guess explaining how like XX works. Um, and this was pretty weird. This was at like you know nine and nine and two or nine and three or something. Sure. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. So he had been locking people out a lot. Uh, I assume mostly doing chalice on one for two mana, um, but. I, it was really confusing, uh, and then he was kind of salty for the rest of the match that his chalice on three didn't work. Well. <laughs> um, which it also just wouldn't have worked, because he didn't have a chalice on zero yet. And wasn't he playing against Living, Living End? Living End. So you so just play chalice on zero, and it's busted. Right. Um, and then you probably, like, you could possibly justify playing your second chalice on three if it you just sounds like mana, more of a but... misunderstanding of how chalice works in combination right, with right cascade so so number one he didn't understand how it worked yeah. against living end and then number two he just did not understand how, like how to do an xx cost mm-hmm. and i it was just a very like i just didn't really see yeah. how that could have happened my opponent is saying three and tapping four mana i all right i just Help. don't know what's happening <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, UberJJ asks, what's your biggest guilty pleasure? So I kind of have a problem with the term guilty pleasure in general, because, like, when people use it, like, oh, this book is trashy, but I love it. Like, if you love it, just do it. Don't feel bad. But, uh, like, things you can actually feel guilty about would be, like, boy, I really love doing heroin, but it's really <laughs> bad for me. I feel a little guilty about that. That's yeah. that's fine. But, like, I play goofy video games. I watched like, silly cartoons and stuff but i try not to let myself feel bad about that unless i'm like doing it to excess um i i really like kind of like schlocky science fiction novels a lot nice. and so that if you know if we're using like the standard definition of guilty pleasure that's probably what what it would be for me 
I just don't I don't feel bad about reading like the Deathstalker series. Like I just really <laughs> yeah, yeah. enjoy that. So well, good. Yeah. So I'm currently watching an old TV show called Merlin, and it's on Netflix for anybody interested. And it's essentially just like uh, it, I, I guess it came out like almost 10 years ago at this point and it's just this really cheesy yes uh, i think i watched take. that when it was on tv yeah, so, yeah. yeah it was just it's just this really cheesy take of like um a young merlin trying to help a, a young arthur <laughs> reach his destiny or whatever and uh just it's just one of those shows that's like pretty classically episode by episode there isn't really a whole overarching plot it's just like because, a problem of the because day. the overarching plot is that it's king arthur as a <laughs> prince and but he's got a destiny and he's gonna fulfill it and we already we already know right, right. but we're, we get to see these little like you know fun stories or stuff gotcha so i've been watching that like you know an episode before i go to sleep and it's it's fun but it's extraordinarily cheesy but i love it so <laughs> uh, all right next is Ellison asks, what's the longest game of magic you've ever played? The longest game of magic I've ever played. Yeah. Interesting. Well, most of my matches are constrained by 50 minutes. Tournament rules, yes. But I, I, I've gone to time pretty significantly. <laughs> have you ever had a game one go to time? Uh, have I ever had game one go to time? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I, I played Green White Devotion in Standard. Those so. just went to time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was probably one of those matches. Almost playing certainly. Green White Devotion in Standard. Yeah, I don't have anything that sticks out in my head as being super long. I don't play that much like casual magic where you just like have an EDH game that's like four hours long and everybody wants to die or something like that. I, I can't even I can't remember if I've ever had a game one go to time because I, I like that Devotion era. I was not mm-hmm. really playing competitive magic at that at that time i was taking some time off because i was in law school so i kind of missed out on some of that yeah i don't have anything that particularly stands out oh you know what i feel like i might have played um a multiplayer game of drunk drafting oh okay that took a long time so uh-huh. maybe that maybe that counts <laughs> <laughs> probably yeah it's it's probably something outside of the strictures of ter- the tournament format right 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 yeah because uh, i don't know if you've ever drunk drafted but it's uh those cards are a doozy. And is that everybody's reading them all the time, and that's people the boo- are getting wasted? The booze cube. The booze cube. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the better term for it. Sorry. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But it, it was fun. Yeah, I I actually haven't played it. I got to, I have to at some time. I know Josh has stopped pushing it quite quite as hard as he used to. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah, never yeah. Like a, I'll bring the booze, booze cube sort cube. of thing. Right. But I'm well, also, I feel like if you if you draft it like a couple of times, then you're, you you, you're you get fine. the idea, yeah. right? And True. you just don't want to get that plastered very often. I'm just not a big drinker, so <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, all right, Dubes asks, does CCR listen to CCR? So I do like CCR. I think they have some individually extraordinary songs. I don't ever like I, I was gonna say i don't ever like intentionally spotify them but i'm i don't use spotify i use google play music but i don't i don't ever like intentionally google play music ccr but i mean a bunch of their songs are just jams and they're in so many movies and stuff that you're like that's ccr that's great yay <laughs> but yeah they're not yeah. really one of my bands if you know what i mean sure blue pill red pill asks what does ccr miss about europe well i mean i always miss the people whenever i leave a place so that's the easy cheating answer (laughs) from germany specifically i kind of miss some of the street food so there was no mexican food in germany worth eating 
I think I had one taco that was fine. Sure. Um, but they don't have Mexican immigrants, but they do have Middle Eastern immigrants. So the street food is mostly like Middle Eastern kind of stuff. So Dooner kebabs are like the big thing. Okay. And those are hard to find around here. So I do miss that. And I also just miss how close everything was. It was yeah. like a three and a half hour train ride. And I was in Paris from the little town in the middle of nowhere that I was living. Okay. So well, that's cool. pretty cool. All right, after two CCR questions, Louis Oh, here's asks, one for me. <laughs> Collins, how is school going? School's going great. Uh, I just finished my first semester. I've already signed up for my next classes. I start classes on the 7th, um, so that's in a week. It's going to be the Monday following Columbus. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I'm feeling good about it. It's, it's all pretty simple stuff, but it's just kind of creating a structure to my life, and that's been pretty amazing, so. Cool, good. Yeah. I, th- that... Adding a structure is like an underrated part of like that's actually one of the things I'm more excited about because I just got yeah. a job and right, I'm right. about to start going to work, but it yeah. means that like I have a schedule now and that's that's kind of nice. It is. It is nice for sure. Ellison asks, "What's your favorite deck you've ever played and what's your least favorite?" Wow. Favorite deck I ever played was my Grand Prix Finals uh green white ramp. Um, you kind of busted it. That deck was broken for that format. It was amazing. And my plans against Teamer mm-hmm. were immaculate. Yes. Nothing felt better than knowing exactly what my opponent was going to do before they do it. We're passing into your fifth turn. You're going to go three mana, play a three drop, hold up negate. And I'm going to play an Oblivion Sower the next turn. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to be very sad about your life. Yep. <laughs> yeah, no, that was great. And I, I've, I've said before, like... Multiple times during that tournament, I walked over, yep. saw your opponent's hand, and they were just holding up, like, they had, like, two negates, and they were holding yep. one up. And, and I just... either am playing a Regal Caracol or an Oblivion Sower. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. Uh-oh. I crushed a lot of people that tournament. Do you have a least favorite deck that stands out? Least favorite deck I've ever played. That one's tough. I'm going to think about that for a okay. second. Uh, come back to me. Yeah, so my favorite deck that I've ever played was probably Astral Slide. Okay. Because uh, it was like the first kind of like competitive standard deck that I ever built, and I like built it out of all my own cards, and I, like I owned Wrath of Gods in order to build the deck, and that was like a big deal to me because Wrath of Gods were like like eight or ten dollars or something like that, and that mm-hmm. was a lot of money for me. It was like a big deal to put the deck together, and then the deck was just really cool the way it works. Like you'd cycle a land. You'd, like, block a guy with an Eternal Witness, cycle a land, draw a card, blink your Eternal Witness, get the land back, and it just felt like you were you were just doing it really hard. So that was that was a really cool deck. Yeah. Oh, yeah that was yeah. probably my favorite. Uh, least favorite? Honestly, it's probably more because of recency bias than anything else, but I am so happy to not be playing black-red aggro slash mid-range anymore. I just, like... You know, I played a GP that was just, like, eight mirror matches with that deck, and the deck was not particularly fun to play, it, like, wasn't very aggressive, it was just really mid-rangey, and the only, like, card advantage engines are, like, keeping Chandra in play or whatever, and it's just, like, there's no good way to get an advantage in the mirror except by playing, like, more Hazarets and more Rekindling Phoenixes, but Hazarets weren't that good in your deck, and the Rekindling Phoenixes, like, clogged up here, so I just... I was very over playing black red by the end of that format and i'm really glad that we don't have to do that anymore yeah yeah my okay so least favorite deck for me i don't know i the thing i enjoy out of playing magic is like the the puzzle element of it i really mm-hmm. like figuring things out about how the games are going to play out like how to outjuke my opponents 
um, and stuff like that. And those elements exist in all decks yeah. for the most part. Um, so I feel like I am... Uh, but, you know, I, I guess the the most recent deck that I've played that just, like, really didn't fulfill that <laughs> that side of me was Tron. Yeah, reasonable. <laughs> so I, I hate to say that the least favorite deck I've ever played was Tron, but it just, I think it just was. Yeah, just not fun to play. What a bummer. Yeah, that's reasonable. <laughs> yeah. Ellison also asks, what's your happiest magic memory? Happiest magic memory? Probably winning Cincinnati. Yeah, that's... That's pretty sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Can't really complain about that. <laughs> yeah. That one was pretty good. Yeah. I I mean, you know, making the finals of Charlotte was very cool just because, like, that was my kind of my first, like, I had been playing Magic 4 forever, but on and off, and a lot of times not taking it particularly seriously, and showing myself that, like, I can get tournament results is, yeah. like, that's a really nice feeling. Yeah. But... Another one that just sort of sticks in my head, and I, for some reason, will just never forget, uh, is, like, me and my little brother playing with our piece together, like, Mercadian Masks block and Invasion decks. Like, I had, like, a black-red, like, Zombies deck with lots of, like, Terminates and stuff, and my, my brother was playing, like, his mono-green stuff, and we we were going to go see a new house and that that my parents were thinking of buying and we got dragged along but didn't really care so we were just sitting like on the in the empty living room like playing magic with each other uh, and that ended up being the house that like we got and then i've most spent like most of my life living in yeah um but just that that like that like weird like connection with my brother like we're both like really bored with everything else that's going on but we can just sit there and play magic and it's all fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's a memory that's gonna like stick with me for a long time. That's awesome. Um, what was your favorite magic trip and why? I think this previous invitational really ranks up there mm-hmm. for me in terms of favorite magic trips. Uh, so many awesome things happened that mm-hmm. weekend. And I include getting stuck in that house for a couple of extra yeah, days is that's a, fun. a really yeah. awesome thing. Yeah. Yeah, I you know we had a party. You know we hung out. I I did well in the tournament. It was just like all of the pieces were there. Right, for me. right. It's just got um, everything. You know, excellent social. You know, elements and and everything else. It was probably yeah, probably that one for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to pick out a particularly favorite magic trip. They all kind of have different things. Like I've gone to tournaments with different groups of people, and they're all kind of different experiences, but like good to have in their own way Mm -hmm. so i don't know i probably just can't really answer this so next question (laughs) um uber jj asks what's the worst piece of advice you've ever received that ended up being super helpful Ooh, wow that's a really good question yeah but it's one that i don't know that i have access to an answer to i feel like there have been several times in the past where i've been like wow that advice was really bad but honestly it really opened my eyes to something but i I just can't think of any right now. Maybe we'll come back to this one. I mean, I've received bad advice from people that has been helpful in that it helps me realize, like, what's important to me. Because, um, like, I've had people, like, you know, tell me about, like, what I should do in order to, like, get my career off the ground or something like that. I mean, a lot of the advice that you get, especially these days, is, like, old knowledge. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, the, like, go shake shake somebody's hand and say, I'm willing to do whatever you want for a job, and they'll just give you the job, and that's 
not really how stuff functions anymore. So, right. you know, that, that, that's its own category of bad advice. But, I've you know, you get a lot of advice about, like, I don't know, like, I'm, I, you know, I'm a lawyer. I'm in the legal profession. A lot of people, especially people who are older than me, like, want to give me advice about uh, how to, like, get a job as a lawyer or, like, what type of law I should be practicing because it's, like, got you know big potential for the future or something like that and you know there it it teaches me that like my worldview is very different from a lot of people's worldview when they're saying like you should do this type of law because it's going to be you know there's going to be a lot of room for growth in it and i'm like but it just isn't interesting to me it's not a thing that like i will enjoy doing and and I, for a little, for a while, like when I received that kind of advice and I had that sort of mental response, I was like, is this the right way to be thinking about it? Like, d- shouldn't I like be picking something that allows me to be successful because there's, you know, room for growth or whatever. But the, the more I thought about it, the more I realized like that worldview is one that's really important to me is like, I can't spend my time doing stuff that I don't want to be doing. Yeah. So. Absolutely. So probably moved a little bit away from the question, but. That's well, what I mean, I've learned. I, I yeah, I mean, I think that you know, bad advice is only really ever going to give you that kind of um, right insight into into things, right? It's just like somebody gives you advice and it just like shows you something that they were intending to show you, but mm-hmm. it was really eye opening and important. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, and I I feel like I, I I've of course gotten tons of old knowledge advice in my <laughs> life. You know, I I dropped out of school and a lot of people who were heavy influencers in my life <laughs> didn't like that even a little bit so i i heard all about it right but it, it yeah similarly i think i had a very similar experience where it just really taught me where my values were yeah i'm very happy with where i am today and i don't regret doing that um mm-hmm. and you know and i'm back in school you know remedying those mistakes that i made but uh but that's life and that's that's just how it goes yeah and whether or not they are mistakes even if they are mistakes like they are mistakes to make and you always you know yeah right it doesn't make a ton of sense to like regret things that you've done because you would be a totally different person if you had taken a different road and that's yeah it's part of who you are at this point yeah uh dubes asks over or under toilet paper roll placement over yeah i mean i think this is pretty clear over but if you have cats then it's under I've heard that argument. That's, you know, I think that's yeah. just the way it is. I can buy it. Yeah. My unpopular answer is going to be whatever you're used to. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, let's, let's be real here. These, this is not a big, yeah. not a big debate. It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, Lee asks, what non-magic games do y'all play right now? And David Moreno also asks uh, about Keyforge because he keeps hearing people talking about it and he's wondering if we've tried it out. Ooh. Well, the biggest one that I've been playing lately has been Smash Ultimate. Yep, we've been playing a little bit of that. Yeah, Chris and I are both recent uh, <laughs> recent owners of a <laughs> Nintendo Switch, mostly due to... I own one game. Uh, Smash Ultimate existing. So we've been jamming that. Um, yeah, and if you've been hearing fun. like the gentle tapping of a video game controller, it's Jeremy right. sitting on the couch next to us playing Smash with the sound turned off very, <laughs> very politely. Yes, yes. Um, um, yeah, Smash has been fun. I've been playing a lot of the um, the uh, the alternate draft mm-hmm. things on Arena, but that's magic. That's just magic. But it feels like not magic. It's not. But it's, when you have infinite yeah. mana, it's a different thing. But um, yeah. And then another game that I I've been playing lately a lot is uh, is Halo. 
Halo 5. Um, been jamming that. It's just a fun like skill tester that I feel like I can continue to push myself in, and I like those. So. Yeah. So, yeah, I've been playing a lot of Smash. The game that I spent the most time on, and I haven't played it recently, but is honestly, like, I may have spent as much time playing this game as I've spent playing Magic, wow. is Path of Exile. Whoa. Um, so it's a, an action RPG sort of a spiritual successor to diablo 2 and i got like pretty intensely addicted to it for a while nice. so i've 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 put it down hardcore because <laughs> if i pick it up like i pick it up if you pick it up your life is over yeah it's kind of it's, it's right. kind of a problem yeah. yeah um so that was a really big game for me for a long time uh, i have picked up KeyForge a little bit i've tried it it's fun but you know i only own one deck so i'm not like really like getting into KeyForge super hard so I just picked up Night in the Woods, which is kind of an indie point-and-click adventure game, and I'm trying to do better about like playing these like really good independent video games that show up on on Steam and cost ten dollars, and you get a ton of fun out of and are super interesting. So yeah. I'm trying to trying to put more effort into doing that. But honestly, like have not been playing as many games recently as I as I kind of like to. So hopefully we'll be picking up some more. Yeah, for sure. Lee asks, what's your favorite city to visit for a magic tournament? CCR has to provide one from each side of the Atlantic. Oh. Okay. I know that you have a, a favorite. I'm going to snap off Columbus. Uh, well, good thing that we're going there this weekend. Oh, then. yeah. Columbus is great. I've always <laughs> preached that. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. So for me, Barcelona was really, really fun in Europe. I really enjoyed Barcelona. Okay. Um, but, you know, I had the benefit, like, I was staying in a hostel and just made a bunch of friends in the hostel and, and went out with them most of the nights and uh, did pretty poorly in the tournaments. And I don't know if that was partially as a result of <laughs> non-tournament uh-huh. adventures in Barcelona. But, <laughs> right. Um, but, yeah, super cool city, just a ton of stuff to experience, like, really beautiful, and just, like, I went for a run outside of my hostel, and they just, like, fell into this park that was just all statues and fountains and stuff, and it was it was really cool. And it's right on the beach, too, which was also right by my hostel, so. Phenomenal. Yeah, super cool. Uh, on this side of the Atlantic, I mean, honestly, like, I really like it when there are tournaments in Raleigh. That's super cool, because I yeah. don't have to go anywhere. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> um... Regionals but, is lit most like, most of the time. Like yeah. favorite city to go to, I'm not sure that anything really stood out in particular. We'll see. Like after I go to all the like SCG spots again this year, maybe I'll have a, a better, more definite answer. After, yeah, after I mean, you you still have a lot to explore. On, yeah. on these coasts. Have you been to Columbus yet? No, I have not been to Columbus for a tournament. Oh yeah. man, you're gonna be in my car too. This is gonna be, <laughs> is gonna be great. Fun. Yeah, you gotta show me every all the stuff you like. Um, kind of a related question. Uh, Curtis Dezo asks, "What does traveling to events look like financially for you all?" I would imagine budgeting far out in advance is a requirement, but exactly far how how far out do you plan? So there's the way you should do it. Right. Yes. <laughs> and then there's the way that I do it, uh-huh. <laughs> and those are pretty different. And I can talk about both. Uh, <laughs> How about the way you do it? Okay. Uh, pretty. Yeah. Pretty terribly. About Wednesday, I realized that there's a tournament that weekend, <laughs> and then I start messaging my friends and saying, "Hey, who's who's driving up here?" Uh, and then there's a car going, and I'm like, "Do you have an extra spot?" And great. And then you just you know sometimes on the drive up we'll like see if there are any hotels available 
<laughs> so it's pretty bad i usually try to make sure we've got like an airbnb set before the drive starts um, <laughs> honestly financially it's less of a burden than you might think it was very Just, expensive for me yeah. in europe i think that we've learned to be smart about it yeah um yeah and honestly there's so much that you can do to save money traveling uh that i don't do but just more out of laziness than out of you know anything else right um but making peanut butter sandwiches <laughs> well right i mean the so when you go on a magic exp- trip you're you have several categories of main expense right mm-hmm. you're going to be eating out all weekend so that's going to be an expense um, you're going to be, you have to pay for gas, um, if you're driving or you have to pay for a plane ticket if you're flying, um, or both if you do a hybrid. And I actually recommend that people look more into doing a hybrid of driving and flying mm. because if you look at price, if you look at tickets for, uh, price, prices of tickets for various airports, mm-hmm. you'll start to recognize that certain airports flying out of is much, much cheaper than other airports. Atlanta is a good example of a good airport where if you could get to Atlanta and fly somewhere, mm-hmm. it's going to be pretty cheap. So, And it's so, going to be a direct flight probably because Atlanta's yeah, a hub, so that's right, really nice. For sure. So there's definitely things that you can do to save there. But yeah, I mean like cutting and then like hotel or whatever is your other main expense. Yeah. And then you're going to be spending money entering into tournaments or whatever. So, you know, all those things add up. I estimate that you should expect to spend at least $300 on the weekend. So uh, if you're not budgeting for that, then and if you can't afford that, then I would recommend that you don't go mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's just not it's just not a very cheap thing to do um i you know i'm very lucky because i i'm able to you know i'm on a team so i get and i wrote for star city for a while so i get all sorts of benefits financially for showing up at events mm-hmm. but but yeah i you know you definitely got a budget there but just be smart about it there's like in, in all of those categories there are things that you can do to limit your your pricing you can and you can it's a cost-benefit analysis on each of those elements that sometimes I, like, hedge in one way or the other. When I was grinding tournaments way back, like, several years ago, I would stay in hostels. Uh, it's much cheaper to stay in hostels. You can have a bed sometimes for as cheap as, like, 15 bucks for a night. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. You can take Greyhounds or Megabuses. Uh, those are really terrible travel, but they're, they're very, very great. cheap. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you have to really be willing to dedicate a day to just doing that travel because it's going to take a long time mm-hmm. and uh you know you're gonna make several stops and it's crazy yeah i think i have kind of like not fully appreciated how lucky we are that there's just always a car going <laughs> yeah and yeah we we are particularly lucky in the triangle is that we've got a lot of people here who um can help facilitate us getting somewhere because they're just gonna be cars going up from our area and we're all pretty connected and friendly with each other so Mm -hmm. we can just make it work and once Um, you once you split the gas four or five ways like that's a significant cost reduction yeah Um, yeah. splitting the airbnb or the hotel room like one of the problems when i was traveling around europe is for a lot of my trips it was like a plane ticket and i was paying for my own even if it was a hostel or hotel whether it was a hostel or hotel room like it could still be kind of expensive um, and then also just don't underestimate that you will be buying several meals a day yeah, and also yeah. snacks. Like, that yeah. is expensive. Right. So, yeah, I would definitely plan on spending a lot on food if you're if you're going to choose to not pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. You can also choose to really vigorously pay attention to it and then, like, hit a, a grocery store when you yeah. get there. 
get a lunchbox, have sandwiches. Mm-hmm. And you'll eat healthier you can, that way you too. You can do all that, and it probably is just much better. Yeah. Um, but you know, the decisions that we end up making on these trips are not. not yeah, there's a lot of like Chick Fil A and stuff that right? happens. So. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. But yeah, I mean, good question, and definitely something that I feel like I've learned a lot about. So mm-hmm. I do have a lot of knowledge. I just. Um, and now that we're talking about it, I, I do think that I should start applying more of these things, Mm -hmm. but I just never, I just never do. Right. And it also depends, you know, like if you are not working and so you have a bunch of free time, then you may, it may be beneficial to spend more time on this prep stuff and minimizing costs as much as possible and, you know, making the peanut butter sandwiches or whatever and stuff. If you are working, you may not have the time to spend like making sure, you know, cutting $50 off of the trip and, you know, by doing a bunch of work and you, you know, you may just spend a little extra money. Like it just kind of balances itself out a little bit that way. Like how much time can you invest in preparation? And it really also depends on what you view these tournaments as. Mm -hmm. I think a majority of these players, the people who go to these tournaments view it as like kind of a a weekend getaway deal, right? And they don't want to be getting peanut butter sandwiches and Right. It's way, way more fun to go (laughs) out and have some like decent Mexican food or something with your friends. Right. So, you know, figure out what works for you and, you know, and definitely go with that. I like, I make a lot of the decisions that I make now because... It's just, you know, what I enjoy more is that, I yeah, I want to have this big dinner with mm-hmm. 15 people. I love that every time. So, yeah, I mean, you know. Yeah, definitely. Your mileage may vary. But, yeah, I mean, good question about the, the finances and stuff. Yeah, it's a big part of it for sure. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people do who rigorously go out to all these tournaments have spreadsheets, have everything planned out, and even have, like, budgeted... You know, they just like put that money away already. Mm-hmm. But I personally, I'm just not right. that organized. It, it all depends on your level of organization, your yeah. financial situation, and that, that sort of thing. But yeah, there's there's different systems that can work for you if you if you work at it. Uh, Lee asks, what types of decks and strategies do you gravitate towards, and why? Um, I'm just in general really into graveyard decks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In modern, I do think that it's one of the two most powerful things you can be doing. Yeah. Like mox opal decks and graveyard decks, I think are the most powerful stuff that you have access to they're the most disruptable but they're also just straight up extremely powerful um and i just really love whether it's in a more casual format some like really value-based like cycling stuff out of my graveyard kind of thing or in more competitive formats just like using the graveyard to get out a bunch of phoenixes really fast or whatever like if it's graveyard based i'm interested in it yeah for me anything proactive yeah it's just my bias as i really really like proactive decks Mm -hmm. i really like being able to utilize threatening to win the game as a as a resource Mm -hmm. i think that's a very valuable resource um yeah and it it just becomes so prevalent all the time in so many contexts um and i i see myself trying to utilize that resource more than most players in limited Mm -hmm. um just like a lot of people who draft these like really grindy like limited decks where the plan is to you know grind out your opponent and get a lot of value even in those decks the fundamentals of magic are such that you you're going to end up with creatures and your opponents are going to have creatures because it's limited um so if you can really look for getting in those points of damage making those good attacks for sure um you you will realize that if you end up in that position and in limited it's it's you know you're not playing a deck really geared toward that you're not playing like an aggressive archetype usually um it's more of like a this is what i drafted this is my plan or whatever Mm -hmm. um 
but the games where I find in, uh, myself in a position where I can utilize that resource, it just feels so powerful. It's just like such a demonstration of, wow, my opponent's chum blocking now. That's a resource that I get to utilize now because yeah. I was aggressive earlier in this game. Definitely. And so I just got a, like a free creature out of it, right? It's great. Uh, so I think that's part of what draws my bias towards proactivity. Mm -hmm. um, and I, the, my running theory right now is that that is also just kind of fundamentally more powerful in magic. <laughs> but, you know, who, who knows how much of so that is my bias speaking. <laughs> I mean, it might just be because you tend to, like, perform better in games where you're, like, taking advantage of that resource. Yeah, yeah. And, right, yeah, I might just have a higher success rate in, in that context because that's what I know, and mm -hmm. that gives me a higher success rate. So, yep. you know. Who knows? All right. Lee also asks, what do you do when you feel bored with magic? Um, probably stop playing it for a little bit. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, so I have, like, taken time off of magic and quit and come back and stuff. And, I mean, I'm, I'm like, playing the most competitive magic that I ever have at mm -hmm. this point. Um, and, you know, most of my magic career was spent being relatively, you know, being aware of what was going on in the competitive scene. Like, understanding the decks that existed and stuff, but then not not necessarily engaging in high-level competitive magic. And I've also, like, taken months or years off and then come back, but I kind of always end up coming back to it. Yeah. Um, recently, I don't... Maybe just because, like, I've been, like, pretty surrounded by it and because we're doing the podcast and stuff, like, I haven't felt particularly bored with magic at any time there's certainly times where i don't want to fire up a modern league yeah, right on, on moto yeah but it's like pretty easy for me to want to go do whatever the gimmick draft is this week on arena or whatever yeah 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 so there's right. so yes if you are getting bored with magic as a whole then just take a break like that's totally fine nice. if you're feeling like i don't want to keep playing modern right now like there's a bunch of different magic that you can play if you want to keep yeah. playing magic so yeah, I mean, I frequently just like fire up a draft if I'm mm -hmm. if I'm like testing constructed and I'm I get bored of it a little bit. I'm like, all right, well, let's draft a little bit and see how that goes. Yep. But I so I've been climbing recently. So I'm going to use a climbing metaphor. I'm so excited. Okay. Uh, when so in exercise and in climbing, um, and especially in climbing, one of the things that's really emphasized that it, that people tend to overlook is rest. Mm -hmm. When you're bouldering, uh, a lot of the moves that you're doing are extraordinarily energy intensive. Um, we think about climbing in, in like an energy as an energy resource uh, game almost, mm -hmm. where you really need to be optimizing the way your your technique in the way that you're moving up the wall so that you can you can have enough energy to finish it off at the top, mm -hmm. right? Um, and what's important is that you if you make an attempt and you fall off it's really important that you stop and rest for a little bit because you're, you, you really don't want to be trying to climb in fatigue. Mm -hmm. It's really bad for you because you're going to be having it's the, the, the danger is the difference between um, the adrenaline that's going to make you try something and your muscles being fatigued and then you're more prone to uh, hurting yourself. Right. Um, so rest is really, really important. And I think that that also applies to mental exertion as well sure i think that rest is really really important whenever you're really using a lot of mental energy on something um and i think that boredom might even be a a psychological response to 
being overexerted in some context. It's interesting. So I think that people tend to try to sit down and just jam leagues on Moto all day. Yeah. And they'll just go, go, go. And they're having fun, right? So they just continue to go, go, go. But I found that whenever I do that, I get uh, I get mental fatigue. And I, st- I start noticing that the decisions that I make are much worse. Mm-hmm. And it just becomes non-productive or something. Yeah. Um, and 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 I think that boredom kind of comes out of that a little bit. It's just like, well, I'm just not even trying anymore. This is boring now. I'm just going to stop. Um, and I think that stopping in that context is good. Good. You yeah. should you should just do that. Definitely. You should give yourself the opportunity to rest. Think about something else. Think about nothing. Watch an episode of Merlin. Who cares? Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the rest is really really underutilized and. And the example that they give in uh, in climbing is that when you're resting, that's when you are actually getting the most progress. That's mm-hmm. when your muscles are able to, you know, kind of readapt and, and, and build on themselves. And I would imagine that there are similar things that happen mentally when you're really, really like putting yourself in an environment and exerting yourself mentally and figuring things out and solving puzzles all the time. Being able to step back away from that, your mind subconsciously is going to be able to process some of those things and you're going to be able to translate some of those things into long-term memory Mm -hmm. which is really really important if you're planning on playing a tournament the next weekend so yeah uh rest it up get bored sometimes play something else don't don't do anything i'm i'm for it yeah agree yeah um uber jj asks what do you hope is your lasting impression on the magic community you know, I, I would love to get to a place where I feel like I'm going to make a lasting impression at all <laughs> on the magic community. Yeah. That seems pretty far off. Um, I think, like, one of my big things that I would like to advocate for is just, like, a higher level of, like, kindness and empathy, uh, especially towards opponents and stuff. Uh, like, every person that you sit down across from in a tournament is, like, exactly this like came for maybe not for the same reasons but they came to the same thing as you and they're sitting down and they're shuffling up a deck exactly like you and just because it is competitive um even from players and i'm guilty of this as well like i have like had games that didn't go my way and i've like my my brain wants to like ascribe blame for stuff onto like my opponent as a person or something like that (laughs) but like just i think it's just so important to remember that like your opponent is a person and they're not they're not even just like a person slash human being they're also like somebody who's like really into the same thing that you're into like your opponent is you basically uh and uh if if like propagating an attitude of like like genuine like respect and kindness towards opponents and other people at magic tournaments is like something that i could do that would be something that i'd be really happy with as a result of like doing this stuff Um, yeah yeah i mean that's awesome for sure i i'm totally with that sentiment (laughs) (laughs) um you know i'm a community guy i think so yeah I, i don't think i'm gonna you know get to a point where i'm like you know, at this point, like, I'm not going to contribute any fundamental tenets of magic theory or anything like that. So we'll have to settle for, like, hoping people are nicer <laughs> to each other. Well, I mean, that's honestly probably more important. I think, I think it's Absolutely, more yeah. And along those lines, uh, my answer to this might get really involved. But because I've been thinking about this lately, yeah, I noticed a, a change of perspective that I have had pretty recently okay. in the way that I think about 
magic, but also just kind of games in general. Mm. And the perspective shift was from looking at magic, and I used to talk about this all the time, I would look at magic like this puzzle that could be solved, right? And in the context of like, you know, I want to optimize my win percentage. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to use the system, the magic rules, Mm -hmm. and even the tournament structure, and just like all all of how it works to try to optimize my percentages, right? And I would find every little corner case scenario where I could... uh, you know, get it, get some sort of edge, right? So I would, you know, I got really familiar with the whole judge call process mm-hmm. was this big thing where I was like, wow, I noticed that because I know how to talk to judges better, uh, <laughs> I, I'm just, you know, I, I just like know what to say to the judge so that they'll rule in my favor. And when I found out that that was true, I hated it. <laughs> I was like, wow, I just like, I feel like I can talk to a judge better than my opponent. And that just means that I'm going to win this judge call because I, because, you know, because I noticed that my opponent made a mistake, you know, small technical mistake, like say they forgot a trigger or something. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I know the rules so well and I know what to tell the judge so well that, you know, that it's just going to give it's, me an advantage in this game. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but and that was all encapsulated into my worldview of uh, the way that I looked at magic is that yeah I, this is a, an area where I can gain percentage points and and, and get a better win percentage from mm-hmm. it was all like operating under this idea that I was somehow like morally separated from <laughs> uh, you know from because I, I of course my morals dictated that I had to do everything within the rules yeah right. But even within the rules, there were, like, little areas in, like, ways that I would, like, find to, you know, get an advantage in some way, right? But I think that my perspective has shifted from that into kind of a broader, let's look at this game and how might we actually be able to change the rules of the game to create a better system? Mm -hmm. So no longer looking at it from the context of, like, these are the rules. How do I optimize my win percentage? Right. Which is, I think, just like the way that a majority of Magic players look at the game of Magic. They want to optimize their percentages, and you can do that through so many ways, most of which are within the context of the game, of course. <laughs> but I still see all these like gray areas and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so this interesting thing happened when I was uh, playing some games with my family the other day, where we were playing Coup and skull which and these are two both like pretty simple games right yeah. and they're but they're all kind of bluffing games where mm-hmm. we have a piece of information hidden face down in front of us um and we need and it's up to us to to bluff in some way about that right yeah yeah so that's coup and skull and skull has this rule written in that you are not allowed to randomly select what you are putting down mm-hmm. right and and that's really important because in order for the game to function, you have to know what's there. Yeah. Otherwise, you can bluff freely and whatever you want. And it's actually game theory correct to randomly select what you have down so that you are separated psychologically, mm-hmm. psychologically from that and then can just do whatever. Definitely, yeah. Right. It just And, and that rule makes it a better game. It really does. Um, so I was thinking about that rule, and then we started playing Coup. And Coup is a game where you have two face-down... Um, roles, mm-hmm. but you're allowed to take any action of any possible role that you could have. Uh, but if you lie about it, then somebody can call you out on it or whatever. Yeah. The game theory optimal way to play coup is to never look at your cards. 
but that sucks. Yeah. Right? And it just makes it a worse game. Definitely. So so I propose that we house rule it into you have to know what your cards are. Mm-hmm. Right? It was a rules change. Right. Or and else everybody's just performing actions at random. Of course. And right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, but I think that it just turns the game into a a more enjoyable system mm-hmm. where now we know what we have and we have to bluff about it and we have the opportunity to give off tells. And then also what happens is that we have the opportunity to read tells. Yeah. And it just, the whole game opens up from there. And I think it's just better, yeah. right? So how can we apply that to magic a little bit? I've been thinking about how all these little gray areas in the rules, particularly with um, the way that judges interact with other people. Mm-hmm. Or it's not... not that's a bad way of phrasing it. Particularly with the way that people interact with judges. Okay. Um, and there's like, there's gray areas and there's like things that people, the mistakes that people make that are then really punished by players who know the judge vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Like the old primary example was somebody would say combat and then somebody would say, judge, my opponent said combat and then tried to activate their mutaval. Yeah. And, and that sucked. Right. It did. And they fixed it. So great. Right. Yeah. But I think that they are still examples of that they fixed it after it happened on camera at a pro tour like, well of course right, yeah, yeah. Right, right but it generally takes that kind of thing to yep. really catalyze that change but something i really want to focus on and this is one of my uh resolutions for 2019 is that i want to really dig into the ipg mm-hmm. and the mtr and see if i can figure out those little gray areas mm-hmm. and propose changes for them that will create a system in which Players can still, you know, optimize all of their decisions to give themselves the best win percentage within the system. But I think the system just needs to change if we want to make the game better. Cool. So that's like a way that I want to try to have an impact on this game. And I want to, you know, I'm going to propose these things to the people who are talking about, you know, who can actually make these changes in the, in the rules. Sure. Because I think that of tackling it from the... Um, well, if your opponent says combat, then you know what I meant. So they should just do it. If that, if that, you know, if getting your opponent is ever, you know, facilitated by the judges or whatever, then that's it's, just, right. it's a worse system. Right. Right. So, like getting your opponent by making them think you have a thing and then not having or whatever. Like, like, yeah, like, that's, that's awesome. great. That's right. fantastic. Right. Getting an opponent because you like made them miss a a, a phase in their turn or something is, is right. yeah. because they didn't say a secret code word is yeah. not is not good. So yeah. Yeah, the idea is that I want the actions that are that are happening in a game of paper magic. Mm-hmm. I want those actions to be most representative of the intentions of the players. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That seems like an overall philosophy. And if we can create the rules that better facilitate that and eliminate times when somebody tries to take an action and but they do it slightly wrong according to the rules but their intent was clear. Mm-hmm. Um, those still exist in Magic. And I think that if we can seek those out and try to fix them in the rules yeah. instead of seeking those out so that we can really get our opponents yeah. on, it's just, it's just we're just going to have a better system, yeah. right? And if we do it holistically and the rules change, then nobody's win percentage goes down. Mm-hmm. You just can't optimize that anymore as, as a piece of your win percentage. So, yeah. okay, sure, If maybe if your win percentage is predicated on getting your opponent a lot, <laughs> your win percentage is going to go down. But That's okay. in my mind, we'll live with that. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, that's something that I've been thinking about for a while that I saw the opportunity to share. Um, yeah. So I did. There you go. Um, next, if you could play your most favorite standard deck of all time against your most hated standard deck of all time, which one would win? I guess I'm the only one who had a, a beloved and a hated one. 
Um, so, like, Astral Slide versus Black Red, I have to assume that Black Red would win just because the cards are 15 years newer and are just more powerful. Like, I don't think that, like, Astral Slide has any way of dealing with Chandra, so that's that's pretty game over. Yeah, well, yeah. Dubs asks, favorite book slash author? So I don't really have a favorite book anymore, because that's kind of like picking your favorite child oh okay uh, my favorite authors are probably ursula Le Guin. she's just a science fiction author who uh, i really love both the worlds she creates and also just the level of prose it, like it's very spare but very but because it's spare it's very poetic it's like the the books are written in a really beautiful way like down to the like word choice level um and i like kurt vonnegut a lot because he's one of the best of all time and just incredibly fun books to read for how like how how prettily written they are and for how like just interesting and weird and goofy they get so those are probably my two favorite authors nice the most recent book that really that i read that really stood out to me and has become one of my favorites Mm -hmm. is the king killer chronicles by patrick rothfuss yeah yeah book one is name of the wind and i that's probably has my favorite book slot right now okay that's legit yeah. i like that book too yeah. yeah and uh book three is just never gonna get well finished <laughs> there's there's like a kind of a book three uh-huh. but it's a it's like a short story of auri ori uh-huh uh, okay i don't think i even know about this and, yeah and not a, lot, a lot of people don't know about it but it is another thing that he wrote that okay. is part of that universe but it's not book three right we haven't <laughs> yeah. we haven't finished the story yet yeah <laughs> yeah uh but it's a phenomenal read so I, I definitely suggest you read it it is great yeah no like if if all of the questions on this list were about books that that we liked and i read like this this would be just my favorite podcast to do ever. <laughs> oh okay so. well great chris is gonna start up a new podcast yeah and it's i mean be, honestly uh, books that he's read and talking about if them. i if i did a second podcast it would absolutely be about books and graphic novels like 100 percent. well great nice if you could create any silly, broken, or actually functional card, what would it be? Have you thought about this at all? Uh, if you had like if an I could invitational create any card, card, yeah, invitational card, or I, even if it was just nonsense, I don't know how I would want to tackle this. So my, I mean, I just specifically want one that slots into the deck that I want to play, but isn't good enough. So, so I'm just gonna cheat and make the card that I want for that deck. So I want like Champion of Wits, but built for Living End. So I want like. Two in a red for a 2-1 when it comes into play, like, draw two cards and then discard two cards, and then I want it to have Evoke for one in a red. That's that's the card that that deck needs to be, like, a good deck. Wow. Okay, cool. And, and I don't... It doesn't seem like a totally broken card to yeah. me, because it's, you know, Champion of Wits was fine, and this just having the Evoke on there for, like, a card disadvantage spell, but it would let you discard extra living ends... It would... Well, be, it would be your Faithless Looting. Yeah, it would deck. be your Faithless Looting, basically. Yeah. Not quite as busted as Faithless Looting, but you couldn't cascade into it. And then when it comes into play with an Archfiend, it would put minus one, minus one counters on all your opponent's guys. <laughs> so <laughs> so that's, that's the card that I want. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that seems really good, to be honest. I think it's fair. But I don't um, think it's good in any other deck, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd have to think about that. I, I mean, I definitely do think that it would help out the power level of that deck in modern and yeah. i think that that likely needs to happen it's not a well, tier one deck yeah i mean it's okay if it never gets helped modern is still fine if living no, in is still sure. unplayable yeah, yeah, yeah. um but in terms of like how 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 disastrous could this be right exactly <laughs> yeah. and yeah. and i don't think that card is like busted in standard or anything so that's that's the card that i'd print i don't know if you 
have come up with anything in the meantime. I have not. Yeah. I don't have my creative juices flowing right now. <laughs> That's all right. What interesting piece of information do you want us to know, but haven't had an opportunity to bring up? Uh, I feel like I'm having one of those moments where uh, you, I just like always have those right, but that I want to share all so the time. There's so much pressure But right now, now that somebody's asked me, I'm yeah. just going to go, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll think of something while we're going through the rest of the questions. Because, see, that's not the way that this People podcast works. People don't mulligan enough in Amazonians play anything Yes. Draft. Okay, that's good. <laughs> if your hand isn't busted in Amazonians play anything draft, you yeah. have to mulligan. People feel obligated just because they only have three cards right. to keep it every time. It doesn't matter. But if your car, if your hand doesn't have anything that draws more cards, you just got to ship it. <laughs> Sorry. No, I agree. Um, <laughs> I started winning a lot more after I started being fine going to two or one. The first time I mulliganed down to one card, and that one card was Sift, it just broke it all open for me. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I spent an entire day playing that format and doing pretty much nothing else. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so that's not really how this podcast works. We don't usually like think of something and then not say it. We mostly say whatever. Oh yeah, we're we're, we're gonna say the things that we're thinking about. Yeah, I just went on off on a huge tangent, but <laughs> you know, uh, that's just what we're about, I guess. Uh, so Zach asks, uh, why do you guys dislike control so much, and what did it ever do to you? Can control do anything to make it back on your good side? So we have two kind of different perspectives here. I know you prefer not to play control decks in pretty much any format. I think. The way that we talk about control mostly is when we're talking about it in modern, and we're just not interested in it in modern and don't think that it's particularly good. Uh, like, I think Jeskai Control in standard is an excellent deck. Mm-hmm. It's one of the four decks that I expect to play against and am choosing between. Uh, like, I'm totally down to play a standard control deck, um, but in modern, I'm just not interested in playing answer cards in general. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I mean. I, I think that control is a very real strategy, particularly in standard. Mm-hmm. I think that control is always at its best in standard. Yeah. And maybe legacy a little bit, um, but... More, the archetypes just, are way more fuzzy in legacy, though. I think that all of the legacy control, quote-unquote, decks, like Grixis control or, you know, Miracles control, those are all more feel more mid-rangey to me in many senses. Yeah. Um, particularly Grixis. Grixis is a mid-range deck. Yeah. Um, it's playing Baleful Strix. Like, that's not... Right. And it and it takes the control role mm-hmm. very frequently in Legacy, just because, you know, it has to, because it's playing against all these other, quote-unquote, more powerful decks. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. It, anyways, the, the, for the question for me is, yeah, I don't... I just don't enjoy that as much. Mm-hmm. And maybe that'll change eventually... Um, I have been slowly shifting my perspective into thinking about magic more in a overall game plan oriented context. And mm-hmm. I think that that is really what you is necessary for playing, for piloting a control deck successfully. Yeah. Um, so, you know, maybe that shift will continue to happen and eventually I'll just be a control guy. Who knows? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, right now I, um, I don't know. It's just what I enjoy out of magic is, you know, viewing it as a, a puzzle that can be solved. So I really like proactively trying to solve that puzzle. Mm-hmm. And when you're playing a control deck, it's it feels less like that. It feels more like a a responsive, predictive game that you're playing. With KCI, for example, it's like, um, all right, well, you know, I I know my win states, and and let's solve the puzzle on how to get there and how to how to get through my opponent trying to interact with that. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it's like a very proactive thing that I'm actively doing all the time. It's like, all right, I'm digging for the nature's claim to get your stony to go or, you know, getting the scion lines that I don't care about your things or, you know, whatever. Like those things are really enjoyable to me, but it's all in a proactive sense. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe just like the clarity of vision that that kind of deck provides gives yeah, you yeah. is... Maybe. is I mean, like, my one of my big issues with a deck like Blue Light Control in Modern is, like, you look at your opening hand, and your hand is Serum Visions, Path to Exile, like, Cryptic Command, and a Jace. And it's just like, is this good against anything? <laughs> right. I, what is my plan? It completely depends on the cards that they are choosing to cast against me, and that's just, like, a level of, like, helplessness that I am not into. Right. I mean, I, I guess that may in particular be a problem with blue-white control. Because, like, if, if my hand was, like, a Jessica control hand with, like, a Bolt and a Snapcaster Mage, then I'd be like, well, at least if they start on Noble Hierarch, then I have a plan here. But... <laughs> yeah. And it might be more to do with the fact that we're just not as familiar with the plans of those decks. I, that certainly a control, doesn't hurt. a control yeah. player likely looks at the same hand and is like, all right, I know what's going to happen this game. Yeah. And but we're just not there, so that creates our bias. Yep, I'm I'm sure that contributes. Yeah. Uh, related to this question, Slint Justin asks, "Can you say something nice for once about Jund? Um, I prefer it to the control decks in modern. <laughs> I, I mean, the the thing that Jund has going for it is being a responsive deck that can also capitalize on either the disruption that you cause to your opponent or them stumbling. If they stumble and you kill, you can kill them with a goif." Mm -hmm. uh you can't do that with blue white control so that's that's a thing that that jund uh and like death shadow decks and stuff like that i'm i'm okay like like the 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 inclusion of Bloodbraid elf now that it is not banned has been a huge thing that like allows jund to actually do something which is kill your opponent yeah um that's what it has going for it for sure yeah i'm absolutely jund fulfills uh jund is one of those decks that plays like so many magic players like to play so similarly in how i am biased towards wanting to be a proactive puzzle solver in magic mm -hmm. uh a lot of players want to play a junt deck right they want to whatever break, that means they want to break their opponent's right. puzzle box apart yeah and... they, they they just like trading resources and really interacting and and, mm -hmm. and doing all that stuff and jun provides a, a vehicle for them to be able to do that and that gives them enjoyment of the game and that's that's great yep yeah uh i don't think you know we're we're always down on Jund, but it's saw, never that yeah. it's like horrible or anything like that. It just mostly feels like a forty-five percent deck, and <laughs> right. I don't think that that's a productive way to approach a tournament at any sure. point. <laughs> What's your favorite post-tournament meal? As long as it's got a bunch of my friends there, I don't really care. Too yeah, much. right. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like this is like a running theme of the episode. It's like yeah. none of this stuff matters. It's just like being with the people that you like and having a good time is yeah. like more important than most of the stuff yeah uh i mean after a tournament i'm just so hungry most of the time it doesn't matter <laughs> right. what we're eating yeah 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 probably be able to eat, eat a bunch kind of no matter what yeah. uh this is a good question uh Sprastown asks what are the biggest traps aspiring grinders can fall into and same question in regards to content creation uh the biggest trap aspiring grinders can fall into is putting weight on your results yeah just at all yeah if you if your objective is to become a grinder, then you got to understand what that means. That means you're going to be going to a bunch of tournaments. Your objective through that should be to get to use that time to learn the game, mm -hmm. to get better at the game, sharpen your skills, 
you should not view that as a time where you are hoping to get results. Mm -hmm. The results will come. It and it you know depending on your dedication and depending on all this other stuff, it it might take a several years for you to get to that point where you can start having results. But if you focus on your beginning grinding time to really hoping that you top eight this tournament, right? It's just not gonna it's just not gonna happen. Yep. So, sorry. Yeah. That's uh, <laughs> completely true. Yeah. Yeah. It, right. If you instead, if you focus all of your time grinding these tournaments on really learning what works for you in terms of your morning routine, what you're eating for breakfast, mm -hmm. uh, how much exercise you put in that day, making sure that you are listening to your body throughout the tournament on um, how much you need to eat and drink and all that stuff and doing all that appropriately. If you focus on really seeing how being at the tournament and l being able to see all of the decks at the top tables really expands your understanding of what is in the format and what you can expect to play against deep into these tournaments. Yep. If you really focus on, you know, improving all of your things, you, you know, all of your various elements that make you a good magic player, then everything else is just, you know, magic's a variance game. Yeah. So... As a grinder, once you've gotten to a point where you are a certain level, then you can expect to start getting something back from that. And and what that looks like is that you say, all right, this year I'm going to go to 15 tournaments or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, whatever your number is. Uh, I'm going to go to 15 tournaments this year, and then uh, I, it's likely that I will cash seven of them and i might even spike two of them mm -hmm. right and that would be awesome and based on my win percentage i think that that's mathematically a thing that can happen yep that's a much more realistic way of looking at your your grinding experiment experience than to at each tournament really really cross your fingers and hope <laughs> that you do well right because because i feel like that's what a lot of people's experience is is that they go to a tournament and they're like yeah this is the one this is the one i'm gonna knock it out of the yep. park for. and then you mold a five in round three and... right and then and but then what happens if you have that expectation going to the event is that it doesn't happen and you're devastated and mm -hmm. your 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 ability to think about what your objectives are as a grinder really deteriorates well and here's the thing like you get yourself up to a 65 percent win rate that's really good yeah but at that point it's pretty much variance that just says that, like the at the sixty five percent win rate, we're gonna assign your losses over to this tournament that doesn't matter, and we're gonna assign a bunch of your wins over like in a row at this tournament. Like yeah. that's all variance. Like right. even if you get this tremendously high win percentage, yeah. like you have to, it just has to work out for you. Yeah. Um, you got to get to that win percentage first. That's like step one. But then like disappointing stuff can happen and that yeah. that connects with you know my my like piece of advice here is really connected to that which is like you are not your results and beyond that you are also not how good you are at magic yes that's oh wow yeah so really, really important that you said that because i think that's a common trap yeah but yeah it, you go to a tournament and maybe you are at that 65% win rate and you you have a bad day and you lose out and and yes you shouldn't give yourself a hard time you go to a tournament and you're not one of those players who's at 65% win rate you mm -hmm. you are struggling you're making plays that aren't very good your friends come over and they're like why did you make this play and you're like honestly i just can't explain why i made that play <laughs> yeah. that's know, fine <laughs> that, you know what yeah. like yes work on it get better at it but that doesn't make you you know, it might it gives you a lower per win percentage. Mm -hmm. It doesn't even make you like 
it certainly doesn't make you a worse person and it doesn't make you like a worse like presence at this magic tournament or anything like that like you still belong there like i am at a point where like i make pretty big technical errors all the time i've played this game for a very long time it's a thing that i'm working on specifically to try to improve and i feel bad when i screw up Mm-hmm. But it's it's really important to separate yourself as a person from your ability to like play this. It's a game. Like yeah. separate yourself from your ability to play this game perfectly because it, it's very easy to feel down. And especially you know if you hang out with some of the people that we hang out with, who are a lot of them are extremely good, extremely technically competent, um, have like great meta reads and have like very distinct opinions and very loud opinions sometimes. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And it can be easy to feel like kind of shouted down and, and maybe like. Like you, you don't matter as much to this scene or something like that. Um, like there's a story that I've told a bunch of times uh, to to my friends, but I don't think I've told this on this podcast. I ran club cross country in college, and one of the guys on the team that I was like friends with, but he always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And at one point after college, uh, I was hanging out with some friends in Chapel Hill. And I got a call from his ex-girlfriend, who was one of my good friends, and she had gone over to his place, which was a mistake, um, and he was being very aggressive and loud and, like, almost violent. And so I went over there to try to, like, defuse the situation and just make sure to get her out of there. And when I showed up, um, he was, like, really surprised to see me there, and he got really upset. And one of the ways that he used to, like, insult me was telling me that I was never really that good of a runner anyways. Um, like, re- like back up and just remember, like, this is me coming to try to stop him from being abusive to his ex-girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's not relevant to the situation. But his life was so wrapped up in the fact that, like, he was a good and fast runner, and mm-hmm. that was so important to his personal identity that he couldn't fathom, like, it not being that important to mine. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really important not to let yourself get to that sort yeah. of place. Yeah. Absolutely. I it, one of the one of the biggest problems that I've noticed with uh, magic culture mm-hmm. is that we do often associate somebody's social standing with their abilities in magic. Yeah, and I think that's pretty bad. And it, it's something that I can see how it happens because you know you just inherently gain popularity when you're doing well mm-hmm. in in through magic, and that kind of creates this dynamic or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, I I do think it's very important to to see that and also understand that that we are as individuals so much more than the game mm-hmm. and we should respect each other as such right no matter what so so yeah you are more than your abilities in magic and also your friends are more than their abilities in magic yep and it's important that you recognize that not both both from you know your own perspective but also in like you know the next time you're tempted to say something about like wow dude you really screwed that one up then you know be just be a little more sympathetic and understanding that that yeah that just happens (laughs) yeah so (laughs) um so it's all right uh sean asks who would win in a fight between a grilled cheese and a taco a grilled cheese and a taco my instincts are the taco because you know it's got like if it's like a hard shell taco it's probably more solid on the outside but honestly like a grilled cheese is kind of tough to pierce well so. here's the deal so tacos my experience with tacos all the time is that they're just falling apart yeah i pick it up okay. and it just falls right. falls all over the and the grilled plate. cheese is pretty a grilled cheese together. i'll tell you what that if if i know anything about grilled cheese it's sturdy and it's gonna <laughs> stick it together so i think that the answer here is pretty clear okay all right you know what i'm probably with you on that grilled cheese yeah 
Mike Braverman asks, who would win in a fight between Bowser and Pikachu? Bowser. We've, we've been trying to settle this for a while now. <laughs> it's been Bowser a little bit recently, but for those, I get you sometimes. For those who don't understand, my, my current main is Bowser and, and CCR's current main is Pikachu. So. Yeah. So this is, you know, kind of up for debate. I think, like, Collins has had my number a little bit recently, but uh, this is an ongoing discussion. Yeah. Bowser is hard to kill with Pikachu. Bowser oh, yeah, yeah. Pikachu is so much. Are, are not phenomenal for sure i i mostly need to work on my edge guarding aerials and stuff like if i can get you off the stage i need to get to a point where you just don't get back on and yeah. once once i have that locked down and then, then this is gonna be a gotta work on your short hops. we'll see yep yep yeah. well just gotta also gotta work on my my offstage bravery i really yeah yeah really yeah. need to be doing more like you choose a character who can just do it off stage because yeah. your recovery is insane yeah exactly so like i need to be doing those things where i'm like getting under you and using thunder off stage and stuff like that like Whoa. like I've, I've been watching i've been watching some stuff okay, so we'll all see right, all right okay. we'll see what i can make work well good does pineapple go on pizza do you like pineapple on pizza right i mean you do you right like <laughs> I don't hate I'll eat it's it's like an IPA to me. Like I'll drink one IPA, but mm-hmm. I'm not drinking IPAs all night long. Sure. If I'm ordering a pizza, it's not gonna be pineapple on the whole pizza because I don't want that for my whole dinner, but I'll have a slice. Sure. I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh would you rather fight one crested sunmare sized artificer's assistant or one hundred artificers assistant sized crested sunmares? Um Artificer's assistant. I'm trying to picture what that is. It's the one-one flying bird that, when you cast a historic spell, you get to scry one. Oh, yeah. It's it's the old. Would you fight? Would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? But I see. But yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. you know magical cards. Probably a hundred duck-sized horses, just because that looks awesome. Right. So <laughs> so that you know that's my intuition. I feel like you can just kick a lot of that. Like like you get through it. The problem. I don't want to try to muscle it out with a really really large thing. Yeah. <laughs> the problem with that though, as as Dubes pointed out, is once you have a hundred artificers assistant sized crested sun mares, they're all indestructible. Oh, so nice. It's a problem. Yeah. So I'm not not totally sure how to win this fight. That that is a problem. Yes. We need to make sure that we can exile things or reduce their toughness to right. zero. And and I mean if it's if it's one crested sunmare size artificer's assistant, I mean that's a five five, and I'm definitely not a five five. So. <laughs> right, right. What is your favorite anime and why? My favorite anime. Phew. Probably Elfin Lead. Okay. Yeah. And why? I wasn't expecting that genre. I, I wasn't expecting it to be that genre, and and it really showed me that I enjoyed that genre a lot. Yeah. So some combination of those things made it really enjoyable for me, and I liked it a lot. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah I am not really, yeah. unfortunately, like not really a big enough weeb to answer this question very well. Like Fair. Mine are just all super standard stuff, so I don't know. I really liked My Hero Academia. Um, that one's been good. And, yeah. I mean, like the Miyazaki films in general like that's just such a lame answer yeah, but yeah um yeah yeah and I, I don't know if i consider that anime anime right. particularly just i think anime typically reverts to tv shows like a series right yeah yeah elf and, yeah elf and lead for me for for those reasons and also i don't i don't really want to say hunter hunter just because that's lame <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that's that's like i really only can could answer to I've only really watched two animes, which was a shitload of Pokemon when I was a kid. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. And uh, My Hero Academia, which was fun. 
What was your favorite standard format of all time? Uh, Bant Company. Just, yeah, play a Bant Company in that. Yeah. yeah. I just, I felt like I understood the Bant Company mirror so well, mm-hmm. and, and not a lot of other people did, and I, I was able to have a lot of success with that, so it, I just really have fond memories of yeah. beating up on people in the Bant Company mirrors. <laughs> yeah, that's legit. Yeah. Uh, I really liked basically the era that was like Ravnica into Time Spiral uh, into Lorwyn. Like, that period was kind of when I just, like, played a lot of standard, played a bunch of different decks. There were lots of cool things to do. Like, Solar Flare was a really sweet deck where you just, like, were casting Zombifies for value and stuff. Uh, and, uh, like, Lorwyn was a, a fun constructed block for me. And then Fairies happened, and it was like, all right, well, this is this is all very silly. And I tried very hard to play all these non-Fairies decks, and it was always a mistake. But I had a lot of fun trying to build non-fairies decks that could beat fairies. Uh, <laughs> Fair. Yeah. A lot of them had four <laughs> cloud threshers in them. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, Hugo asks, this isn't a question. Hugo just says, give us the KCI tech. Um, I've been informed that I can't give you the KCI tech until after Columbus. Okay. So I'm sorry. It's not up to me. It's a team tournament. All right. Uh, if you want the most tech that you have available, I would say go read the updated version of Lee's KCI Bible. Oh, yeah. Mostly. I, no matter what, read Lee's KCI Bible. Because if you're looking for, for knowledge on KCI, that it's, it's mostly all there. It's there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, and making that claim is, is pretty pretty heavy, but it's mostly all it's there. Pretty, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, like, the stuff that you will learn that's not in there is stuff that takes, like, hundreds and hundreds of games to get to, <laughs> right. I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's lots of stuff that takes hundreds and hundreds of games to get to that is there. So. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, very, very excellent resource for anybody trying to play KCI, so. Yep. Um, all right, and so I, I specifically put this one last because I think this is a good one to end on. Jay is asking, what are your plans for Magic in the new year? Uh, playing SEGs, GPs, more Arena. Do you have p- particular folk, foci, foci? Foci? Focuses. Do you have particular focuses or goals in terms of what you want to work on in your game? Plans for Magic in the New Year. I mean, so, uh, yeah, the Players' Championship, I think, is just my primary goal. what you're aiming for. Yeah, I'm going to be going to as many Opens as I can. Mm -hmm. Um, The Invitational put me in a really good spot. I should be in, like, ninth in the leaderboard Mm -hmm. going into the next season, which I'm very excited about because I definitely felt like I was dropping off a little bit the previous season. So, yeah, I'm I'm just going to be focusing on, you know, going, grinding, going to all these SGDs, hanging out with my friends. Mm -hmm. It's going to be great. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I think uh, definitely I'm also focusing on SEGs. Uh, GPs just seem like a very... If there's one... I mean, to be to be fair, like the, lo- the loss of pro points and stuff is not a thing that affects the vast majority of people. And I think is also like the fact that pros don't have to grind GPs anymore for pro points is probably a net positive for most pros. Um, so <laughs> yeah. like the, the idea that the death of pro points is this terrible thing, I think is a like gross mischaracterization of what's happening. Like okay. I, every time I've gone to a GP, it's been basically a giant PTQ is like mm-hmm. how I viewed it. Sure. Like the only thing really that matters, like, yes, it would be nice to get some money, but the only thing really that matters is trying to make top eight and queue for a PT. Like, and that's still, we don't know all the details, but I assume that still is there if you top eight the gp you get to go play in the mythic championship Mm -hmm. so it's not that different but in general gps are just much less much lower ev than scg tournament especially if you're going to a lot of opens um 
So definitely focusing on opens. My goals are mainly to, number one, make it out to as many tournaments as possible. Like I went to a lot of GPs and stuff last year in Europe, but that was a very different experience. Uh, there wasn't like the sort of like community that surrounds the tournaments the way that there is with the opens. Um, and so I really want to make an effort to like become a part of that as much as I possibly can mm -hmm. and just be involved and be going to tournaments. As, as far as things that I want to work on in my game, I mean, just general levels of like in-game focus and pain, like like technical, technically proficient play, uh, it's it is like by far my greatest weakness. Like I at the IQ, like one of my things that I did was I just like moved to combat after casting two spells and didn't get my phoenixes back. <laughs> like I can't be doing that. Yeah. Like cannot be doing that going into the new year. Right. Right. Um. So that's. That's something that I'm focusing specifically on is I'm trying to develop the tools that I can like to to avoid making mistakes like that and to just play cleaner and tighter in game. Nice. So yeah, well, cool. I guess we probably don't need to do a Patreon question of the week. <laughs> so. plenty, plenty of Patreon questions just answered. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I think that's that's those are the ones that we've got listed out. So yeah, that's that's pretty much all we've got for this week. Um, you know, we're recording this on the thirty first. You'll be hearing it as the first episode of the new year. So happy hey. new year to everyone! Yeah. If you'd like to uh, find us online, you can go to our website mtggrindcast.com. Uh, there, you can lend us some support on Patreon if you're interested, or you can go to patreon.com/mtggrindcast. Also on our website, you can find links to Collins's one-on-one coaching services. Yep. Um, so, you know, if you got some of that Christmas money and you don't know what to spend it on, but you're... You should spend it on me. Yeah. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> or you could spend it on spending some time improving at magic, taking some specifics and, you know, buckling down. Uh, yeah, whatever you maybe, want to frame it on. Maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's what we're doing here. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, hopefully, hopefully I'll be able to help you achieve your goals, so... Yeah, yeah. Whatever your magic-related New Year's resolutions are, um, find us on Twitter. I'm tweeting from at mtg underscore grindcast. Collins is also on Twitter at Collins Mullen. And that's really all we got for you guys this week. So thanks so much for listening, and have a great week. Peace. Peace.